The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 18 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC18. This is Secret Church 18, Episode 4. Let's dive into the first, Mormonism. We'll start by asking the question, who are Mormons? I trust we realize what a broad question that is. Like if, if I were to ask who are Muslims or even who are Baptists or who are Presbyterians, you'd immediately realize, okay, not all Muslims or Baptists or Presbyterians are the same. But just as there are foundational teachings that unite Muslims together, Baptists together, Presbyterians together, there are foundational teachings that unite Mormons together. So Mormons comprise what is known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, often referred to, referred to with the acrostic LDS. LDS. Now, how do they get that name, Latter-day Saints? Well, Mormons believe that members of the New Testament church were called saints, which is certainly biblical language. We see that in Acts 9, Ephesians 2. But then Mormons teach that total apostasy, overcame the church following the apostles. And apostasy basically means abandonment of the faith, a renouncing of the faith. So after the apostles, who were known as the former day saints, there was apostasy until the Mormon church was founded in 1830, claiming to be the restored church. So to read from the official LDS website, which talks about the great apostasy, which occurred after the Savior established his church, after the deaths of the Savior and his apostles, men corrupted the principles of the gospel, made unauthorized changes in, unauthorized changes in church organization and priesthood ordinances. Because of this widespread apostasy, the Lord withdrew the authority of the priesthood from the earth. This apostasy lasted until Heavenly Father and His beloved Son appeared to Joseph Smith and initiated the restoration of the fullness of the gospel. Which leads to that critical feature of a cult, the teacher. Mormonism is based on the teachings of Joseph Smith, the first president and prophet of the LDS. Smith was born in rural Vermont in 1805, then moved with his family to New York. Most of his family became Presbyterians. Personally, he leaned more toward Methodism, but he was bothered by variations in Christianity, denominations, distinctions. Which one was right? How do you choose? At a revival meeting, a preacher quoted from James 1.5 that if you lack wisdom, you should ask God. He will give it to you. So Smith, 14 years old at the time, went home, thought about those words, and then went in the woods to pray, which led to his first vision at age 14 of two personages. First vision at age 14, and this is foundational to the Mormon faith. He claimed to see two personages, one of them, God the Father, pointed to Jesus, the second personage, and said, this is my son, hear him. Smith then asked them, which sect should I join? And they said, none, they're all wrong. They're all corrupt, corrupt, and their creeds are apostate. Then, three years later, Smith had another vision of the angel Moroni who told him of golden plates written in hieroglyphics that were buried under a hill. Smith found them, and Smith translated the writings with what he called two reading crystals, those writings later became the Book of Mormon, containing the story of lost Israelites who migrated to America in the 6th century BC, but were killed in battle in AD 428. Smith then received another vision from John the Baptist, making him a priest. That same year, 1830, Smith founded the Church of Christ, later known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That name change, that name change officially happened in 1838. 
After this, Smith continued to receive revelations telling him to move from New York to Ohio to Missouri, eventually to Illinois, where the founder and his followers built the town of Nauvoo. They tried to live this utopian vision of society. They instituted polygyny. Early Mormon believers or leaders believed Jesus had many wives, and so they took many wives. Smith and his brother were arrested in 1844. Smith was actually arrested many different times for many different crimes, including fraud. As you can imagine, LDS historians and other historians disagree over whether or not he was ever guilty of any of those crimes. But on this arrest in 1844, later, a a mob stormed the jail and killed both Smith and his brother. Mormons consider Smith a martyr. Others say Smith died in a violent shootout. Regardless... When Smith died, a schism split in the Mormon church followed. A small group of Josephites became the reorganized church with headquarters in Missouri, while most people followed Brigham Young as their first president and prophet who took followers to Utah in 1847 and built Salt Lake City, which is why Salt Lake City has a, such a large population of Mormons today. But it's not just Salt Lake City. Today, Mormons claim over 16 million members and 30,000 congregations worldwide, 16, over 16 million members, over 9 million members in North America, and over 70,000 missionaries around the world, most of those students, which I'll come back to in a minute. Just to drill down more specifically regarding Mormons in the United States, they display a high level of commitment. Just to get a quick picture, 67% of Mormons are highly involved in their congregations, compared with, in the same study, 43% among evangelical Protestants, believe the Bible is the word of God. 85% pray every day. 84% say religion is very important in their lives. 77% read scripture regularly. And interestingly, from 2007 to 2014, the number of Mormons in the U.S. remained roughly the same by way of comparison. In the same time period, the number of people who identify as Christian dropped by 8%. Now this is key. Claims by Mormons. So if you were to speak with Someone who's a Mormon, 97% would say Mormonism is a Christian religion. So almost all Mormons would identify themselves as Christians. That's obviously key. Remember, one of the key components we discussed, the cult is a group that claims to be in harmony with Christianity. So this is important. A Mormon would not call Mormonism a cult, would be offended by calling Mormonism a cult, a group that deviates from foundational Christian teaching. If anything, Mormonism would say the exact opposite. They've actually restored Christian teaching. Various other beliefs among Mormons, 94% believe that the president of the LDS church is a prophet of God. 91% believe the Book of Mormon was written by ancient prophets. 95% believe that families can be bound together eternally through temple ceremonies. And follow this, 94% of Mormons believe that God the Father and Jesus Christ are separate physical beings. And that is huge. Which leads right into the key question, what do Mormons believe? And keep in mind, after what we said earlier about how Mormonism came to be, after 1,700 years of false teaching in the church, Mormons espouse pretty exclusive claims. To quote from LDS.org, the gospel of Jesus Christ was lost from the earth, the apostasy that took place following the earthly ministry of Christ's apostles, that apostasy made necessary the restoration of the gospel through visions, the ministering of angels, and the revelations and revelations to men on the earth. God restored the gospel. The resura- restoration started with the prophet Joseph Smith and has continued to the present through the work of the Lord's living prophets. So that's pretty exclusive like wiping out over 1,700 or so years of Christian history and teaching. So with that basis and pretty exclusive claims, think in general categories, because much like we mentioned 
earlier with other groups, like different groups of Mormons might believe somewhat different things. So traditional Mormons believe what the LDS has always taught, while more progressive Mormons follow some of the more diverse voices within Mormonism. Regardless, and this is pretty important, the majority of Mormons, including many Mormon missionaries and Mormon church leaders, are not well-versed in the specifics of Mormon theology. So this is often true of different groups we're talking about tonight, and sadly, it's true of many followers of Christ which I hope will be the, less so the case after tonight. But the important thing is, here, I would not assume that just because you're talking with a Mormon, they know all the things that we're about to look at. Or even the things we've already discussed about, about who Mormons are or what Mormons believe to this point. So just like with many other groups tonight, I want to go straight to the source here and describing what they believe. You'll see quotes from Joseph Smith, other Mormon presidents since Joseph Smith's death. You'll see quotes from the Mormon church's official website, which is a side note. This is important. That LDS website isn't just like one person's interpretation of Mormonism. It's not like you can go to Christianity.org and find everything that every Christian believes and teaches. The difference is there's not one Christian church that speaks authoritatively on behalf of all Christians in the same way that there is, in a sense, obviously with some minor differences we mentioned above, there is a sense in which there is an authoritative Mormon church, much like we'll see with Jehovah's Witnesses. We'll see the same with the Catholic church that officially speaks with authority on behalf of Catholic churches in a way that's different than maybe many of us might be used to. So there's not one identifiable, authoritative Christian church that speaks on behalf of the church that I pastor, for example. So all this to say, when I don't think when I use LDS.org that I just found a random website run by some 15-year-old in his spare time who likes to say what Mormons believe and just so happened to be the first to get the domain game and he's getting kicks off of that. Like LDS.org is communicating primary doctrines on behalf of Mormon leaders and the Mormon church as a whole. All that's important because my aim is not just to say what I, what I think Mormons believe with any of these groups tonight. Like, I really want to clearly, fairly, accurately represent what they teach. Tonight would not be helpful at all for anyone if I was misrepresenting what these groups believe. Obviously, we don't have time to cover every single detail and doctrine and drill deep. My hope is to actually a- accurately represent the big picture of what they believe. So with that, what does Mormonism teach about God? And you'll see all these teachings are critical to understanding Mormonism and why we're calling it a cult. Mormonism teaches that God the Father was once a man and has now progressed to godhood. In the words of Lorenzo Snow, the fifth Mormon president, as man now is, God once was. As God now is, man may become. God the Father was once a man, has now progressed to godhood, and so can you. Keep going here. Mormonism teaches that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three distinct gods. Mormonism teaches that God the Father is the physical father of all spirit children, which includes all people, as well as Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Straight from official LDS teaching, there are three separate persons in the Godhead, God the Eternal Father, His Son Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost. We believe in each of them. From latter-day revelation, we learn that the Father and the Son have tangible bodies of flesh and bone, that the Holy Ghost is a personage of spirit without flesh and bone. These three persons are one in perfect unity and harmony of purpose and doctrine. And we'll talk in a minute about these different writings that are referenced in parentheses there. But A of F refers to articles of faith. D and C refers to the doctrine and the covenants. And then when you see books that are not in the Bible, that's uh, from the Book of Mormon. So Mormonism teaches that God the Father was once a man, has now progressed to Godhood. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are distinct gods, and thousands of other gods exist. And seeds of divinity exist in all of us. 
Latter-day Saints see all people as children of God in a full and complete sense. They consider every person divine in origin, nature, and potential. Each has an eternal core and is a beloved spirit, son, or daughter of heavenly parents. Each possesses seeds of divinity and must choose whether to live in harmony or tension with that divinity through the atonement of Jesus Christ. All people may progress toward perfection and ultimately realize their divine destiny. Just as a child can develop the attributes of his or her parents over time, the divine nature that humans inherit can be developed to become like their heavenly fathers. And this picture of God is far beyond even us. Mormonism teaches that prior to creation, many inhabited worlds and planets existed, each of which had gods. In the words of Brigham Young, first Mormon president, after which BYU, Brigham Young University is named, there never was a time when there were not gods and worlds, and men were not passing through the same ordeals that we're now passing through. That course has been from all eternity, and it is and will be to all eternity. So how did our world come to be? Mormonism teaches that a council of gods created our world out of eternal physical matter. In the words of Joseph Smith, God never made something out of nothing, which would be the Christian doctrine of creation based on Genesis. So as you can see from the very beginning, when it comes to teaching about God or the one true God, Mormonism is deviating significantly, to say the least. Then what does Mormonism teach about scripture and authority? Contrary to the Bible as the only authoritative work, you have four authoritative works. Four works that speak with authority for Mormonism. One, you have the Book of Mormon, which is called Another Testament of Jesus Christ. It's another Testament. It contains the record of God's dealings with the inhabitants of ancient America from 2000 BC to 400 AD. You remember Joseph uh, Smith's vision of the angel Moroni who told him about golden plates written in hieroglyphics. Smith used reading crystals to decipher. He learned about Israelites who had migrated to America in the 6th century BC, were then killed in battle in AD 428. So the Book of Mormon tells their story. As a side note, Book of Mormon has many similarities to the King James Version of the Bible, both in content and in form. Then you have the Doctrine and Covenants. The Doctrine and Covenants, which is a collection of revelations and inspired declarations for the establishment and regulation of the Church of Jesus Christ in the last days. These revelations came to Joseph Smith and a few other what they call Latter-day Prophets, and as the name signifies, they explain different doctrines that Mormons believe. Then you have the Pearl of Great Price, which is specifically a selection of revelations, translations, and writings of Joseph Smith. In addition to those three sources of authority, you have the King James Version of the Bible, which Mormonism teaches is not inerrant, inerrant because there are errors in translation. Joseph Smith writes in the Pearl of Great Price, we believe the Bible to be the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly. We also believe the Book of Mormon to be the Word of God. So see how both those books are put on the same plane. Bible, Book of Mormon, So not only is the Bible not inerrant, it is also not sufficient. Like we need another book. The Bible is insufficient. This quote from the Book of Mormon, thou fool, thou shalt say, a Bible, we've got a Bible, we need no more Bible. In other words, it's foolish to say you have the Bible and that is sufficient. It's also worth noting that the LDS version of the Bible is footnoted to interpret meaning and alignment with LDS teachings, particularly when it comes to some of the scriptures we'll look at below. Those four sources of authority are not complete. So Mormonism teaches that there are ongoing revelations and new interpretations that can supersede previous revelation from God. In other words, future revelation can not only expand upon, but actually correct previous revelation. Any new revelations, interpretations can be brought forward only by the Mormon president. 
So this is basic Mormon teaching about God, about scripture and authority, then about people and sin. Mormonism teaches that men and women today are, we've already talked about this, spirit sons and daughters of God. Prior to creation, prior to our birth, our spirits were children of heavenly parents. So yes, we were physically created, but the essential intelligence of our spirits is considered eternal. There came a point when in a family council, God the Father told the spirit children that according to his plan of salvation, we would have to leave our heavenly home, take on human bodies, and be tested before we can progress to Godhood. So that's what happened. We left our heavenly home, we took on human bodies, now we're being tested in order to progress to Godhood. And this is key, not just in terms of our makeup, how we got here, but in terms of who we are. And particularly pertaining to good and evil, Mormonism teaches that in our eternal nature, we are basically good. We're not sinners by nature in that sense. In our eternal nature, we're basically good, but in our earthly nature, we are prone to error. That's where Jesus comes in. Jesus lived a sinless life so that we, his spirit brothers and sisters, could become gods like him and God the Father. That leads to what Mormonism teaches about Jesus. Now follow this closely because the paragraph from LDS.org below sounds a lot like what Christians, followers of Christ, believe. Except for the references and parentheses, of course, but follow this. Sounds familiar. Jesus was born to Mary at Bethlehem, lived a sinless life, made a perfect atonement for the sins of all mankind by the shedding of his blood and giving his life on the cross. He rose from the dead, thus assuring the eventual resurrection of all mankind. Through Jesus' atonement and resurrection, those who repent of their sins and obey God's commandments can live eternally with Jesus and the Father. There's a lot, not necessarily all, but a lot that sounds familiar there. And you can see why many Christians might read that and think, Oh, yeah, that sounds Christian to me. Even hear that, think, yeah, I mean, I think so. But you start to dig a little deeper, and what that paragraph's saying, and things get strangely unfamiliar, because Mormonism teaches that Jesus is the firstborn spirit child of the heavenly father and the heavenly mother, which means Jesus is a secondary God under God the Father. Remember, there are many gods. God the Father is one, and Jesus is under him. So Jesus did not possess deity in himself. Instead, Jesus progressed to deity in the spirit world, which leads to how he saves us. Which Mormon teaches, Mormonism teaches about salvation is that Jesus died on a cross, rose from the dead, but the key is his death was not to endure the wrath due our sin. It's not that Jesus was paying the price of our sin, death, and our place as our substitute. Instead, Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead to enable us to return to our original state as spiritual children of God. That's what the cross is about. Our spirit brother making it possible for us to return to our original spiritual state. How can that happen? According to Mormonism, the conditions for salvation are grace and effort. And the and there is really important. In the words of this teaching manual for the Book of Mormon, grace cannot suffice without total effort on the part of the recipient. Hence the explanation, it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. That's a little different than Ephesians 2.8, isn't it? After all we can do. So in order to be saved, there must be grace and effort. We must have faith, repentance, baptism, including baptism for the dead. So one can be baptized on behalf of the dead. Because all on the earth do not have the opportunity to accept the gospel during mortality, the Lord has authorized baptisms performed by proxy for the dead. Therefore, those who accept the gospel in the spirit world may qualify for entrance into God's kingdom. So somebody on earth can be baptized for you in the spirit world. Salvation is possible through moral endurance, specifically not consuming tobacco, alcohol, illegal narcotics, coffee, or tea. I'm not going to ask anybody tonight what they are drinking to stay awake. 
But these specifics are found in one of the revelations given to Joseph Smith called the Word of Wisdom. On top of all these things, you have various ordinances, baptism, which we've already mentioned, confirmation, ordination of the priesthood, which is reserved for men, the temple endowment, and the marriage sealing. So straight from the LDS website, I quote, in the church, an ordinance is a sacred formal act performed by the authority of the priesthood. Some ordinances are essential to our exaltations. Exaltation. These ordinances are called saving ordinances. They include, those that are essential to our exaltation, they include baptism, confirmation, ordination to the Melchizedek priesthood for men, the temple endowment, and the marriage sealing. With each of these ordinances, we enter into solemn covenants with the Lord. Which leads to the last section on judgment and eternity. According to Mormonism, everyone receives salvation, which that word means resurrected immortal life in a heavenly kingdom. Now, once the body is united with the spirit, three potential destinations await. So three places. One, celestial glory. And there's two levels of celestial glory. The highest level is reserved for married Mormons who have kept the celestial laws and commandments and participated in Mormon rituals. Remember, the marriage ceiling is one of the ordinances essential to our exaltation. So only married Mormons can achieve the highest level of celestial glory. Then the lower level is for single Mormons who have lived worthy lives as well, who have lived worthy lives as well as good people, including Christians who did not have a chance on earth to hear about and accept Mormonism. So that is totally messed up for thousands of people tonight. One significant note to mention here, these people cannot become gods. So God is reserved for those in the highest level of celestial glory. So yes, just to make sure you're getting this, now that you know about Mormonism, you could not be included in this group. So terrestrial glory is the next potential destination reserved for unworthy Mormons and good people who knew about Mormonism on earth but rejected it until after death, which then leaves Telestial glory for wicked people who reject Mormonism even after death. Telestial glory is actually pretty similar to the Christian understanding of hell, but one significant difference is that it is not eternal. It doesn't last forever. So I fully realize we just flew through some massive beliefs and doctrines. We could drill down on each for a while, but our purpose, we want to hit the basics of what Mormons believe and teach. Hopefully this gives you a good overview, and hopefully this makes crystal clear that Mormons are not Christians. Remember our definition of a cult and just think, does Mormonism apply? A group that claims to be in harmony with Christianity, but denies foundational Christian doctrines. And generally, these groups follow the instruction of one individual who dictates false teachings. Remember our definition of a counterfeit gospel, a fraudulent imitation of the gospel that deceived, deceives. So is Mormonism a cult and a counterfeit gospel? Without question, when it comes to denying foundational Christian doctrines, Mormons deny foundational biblical historical beliefs about every truth thread of the gospel, God, man, Jesus, faith, eternity. It all comes back to Joseph Smith and prophets, presidents of the Mormon church who've come after him. In the end, Mormonism is no gospel at all. It's not good news. Mormonism offers a low view of God among innumerable other gods, a warped view of man, another Jesus altogether different from what the Bible teaches about Jesus, what Jesus teaches about himself, a works-based faith that lays all sorts of requirements upon someone for salvation and ultimately a false hope for one's eternal future, which is why if there are indeed 16 
million members in 30,000 congregations worldwide, 9 million of them in the U.S., including, I'm guessing, many friends, co-workers, neighbors, maybe even family members of ours tonight, then we need to know how to share the good news with them. If they're coming to our doors, we need to know not just how to refute false teachings they are spreading, we need to know how to share the truth of the gospel with them. So how do we share the gospel with Mormons? Here's my encouragement. And some of these things apply to sharing the gospel with all people, but I've tried to make specific application to sharing the gospel with Mormons. One, I would encourage you, demonstrate the love of Christ. Think the end of this passage from Colossians 4. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how you ought to answer each person. Uh, our goal in any conversation with someone who's Mormon is not to win an argument with contempt. Our goal is to care for a friend with compassion. Think Matthew 9, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. So when you see a Mormon at your door, which emotion marks you, contempt or compassion? Now, sure, for all the reasons we've discussed, it's right to hate false teachings and the destructions they bring. But when it comes to those who've been taught those things and are now passing them on, let's start with compassion. Demonstrate the love of Christ and imitate the life of Christ. I would say there is a high value in the Mormon church and in the Mormons I know on decency, morality, family, kindness, And these things should be all the more true in those who have the life of Christ, the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in us. There is a sense in which we are, Ephesians 5, 1, imitators of God. Not in the sense that we possess his divinity, but in the sense that we reflect his character. When people see me with my five-year-old son and say, he's your spitting image, he's your mini-me, little David, so should we reflect God and imitate the life of Christ individually, in your family. Mormons place a high value in marriage. So it's helpful to gospel witness to show a gospel picture of marriage, a, a, a marriage picture that illustrates the gospel. Husbands loving, laying down their wives for their wives. Wives joyfully submitting to a husband's loving leadership according to Ephesians 5. Parenting according to Ephesians 6. Imitate the life of Christ in your family and in the church. Mormons place a high value on community in the church, which is the fruit of the gospel. John 13, 35. All people will know you're my disciples if you have a love for one another. So demonstrate the life of Christ. Imitate the love of Christ. Obviously, none of us is able to do this perfectly, but strive by God. God's grace toward the sin. As you do, then explain the gospel of Christ. With gentleness and respect, 1 Peter 3.15, explain the gospel of Christ respectfully, knowing that there are some Mormon teachings here that may seem outlandish and crazy to you, and may, you may wonder why would anyone follow Joseph Smith, but about 16 million people see a reason. So explain the gospel of Christ respectfully, with sensitivity, but also clearly. In conversations with Mormons, we must be clear about who God is and who we are. As we've already seen, there's only one God. There's no one like Him. He is the just and gracious creator of the universe. He is holy. He is perfect. He does not change, Malachi 3.6. And He is spirit, Scripture makes clear. Jesus makes clear in John 4 that God is spirit. He is eternal from everlasting to everlasting. He is God. We must be clear about who he is and who we are. How we are creatures who are totally dependent upon God. We are created beings, heart, mind, soul, and body. And we are not morally neutral. We all have a sense of right and wrong. And we have all done wrong. We've all turned aside from God's ways to our ways. It looks different in our lives, but it's evident in all of our lives. We're not morally neutral. And as a result, we are all ultimately guilty. This bad news about who we are is essential to understanding the good news of who Jesus is. Any cult, anybody who attempts to minimize the bad news will ultimately minimize the good news at the same time. We must be clear that we are guilty before God. 
which then leads us to be clear about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. This is what makes the good news so good. One God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is utterly unique in all of human history. As we've talked about, he's fully God, fully man, eternal in nature and equal with God. We've seen the Bible makes that plain. Jesus, died on the, God in the flesh, died on the cross to pay the price for our sins. Romans 3.25, God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. That means God poured out the just wrath and judgment do you and me in our sin upon his son in our place. Jesus is our substitute, uniquely able to pay the price for our sin, and he did it. So we explain this. We explain Jesus respectfully, clearly, and graciously, meaning the content of what we share, the good news, is full of grace. We're saved by grace through faith. This is not our own doing. Ephesians 2.8, this is not our own doing. Book of Mormon, remember, by grace we are saved after all we can do. That's not good news. That's a horrible news. What can you do? Hopefully you can do enough. We'll see. No, that's the opposite of what we see in Scripture. We're saved by God's grace, not by our works. It's been that way since the beginning, Romans chapter 4. Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. We're all saved through faith, not through our effort. We live by faith. I was thinking, as I was just reflecting on this, preparing for a night, last year, right after this, uh, uh, right after Secret Church, uh, Heather and I and our two older boys got on a plane, and we went, and I was preaching in some places in Germany to commemorate the Reformation, where justification by faith, which we'll talk about more tonight, was so strong. And I was just rem- remembering how precious this truth is, even walking around in, in Wittenberg and thinking about Martin Luther just nailing those theses on the church door there. It's kind of funny. Uh, uh, my kids got a creative idea. We took a copy of Radical and uh, acted like we were nailing it on the church door at Wittenberg. So anyway, there's another, it didn't quite have the same effect. Uh, history altering, but it was a good try. Um, but anyway, I just, I was reminded how precious that truth, this is what our forefathers in the faith died for. We'll talk more about that, but this glorious gospel truth, you confess with your mouth, Jesus, Lord, believe in your heart that God raised you from the dead. You will be saved. So share that good news graciously and humbly. Oh, God looks, Isaiah 66, for the one who is humble and contrite in the spirit and trembles at my word, not the one who presumes we can be God. Remember, that's the essence of sin. And Mormonism feeds it. You can become just like God. You can be God. When our goal is not equality with God. There's nobody like God, Jeremiah 10.6. Our goal is not equality with God. Our goal is reconciliation with God. A restore relation with God. That's what we want. That's what we all need. That's why Jeremiah 9, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. That's what we're after. We want to know God. We want others to know God. So we proclaim the gospel humbly, and we proclaim the gospel urgently. So I don't think it was a coincidence when a couple weeks ago, I was taking an Uber ride, and uh, I get in the car, and I start talking, uh, try to have gospel conversations in uh, any Uber ride, and... uh, Immediately started talking with a, a guy who is a leader in the Mormon church when it comes to mobilizing missionaries. And he was talking about how many missionaries they have, 70,000 missionaries. And uh, so it was a very interesting conversation. We won't go into all the details, but uh, 70,000. He was just talking about how great it is seeing all these people go around the world. And I, just, I thought, why in the world? Are we not raising up our kids to spread the one true gospel, the one true God around the world? 
Why in the world are 70,000 Mormon children like, raised with an expectation that you're going to make this false gospel known somewhere in the world for a couple of years? Like, why, why has that not occurred to us? That'd be a good thing to do. Why, why, why are we raising our kids and all we're telling them is make good grades so you can get in that school, so you can get a good job? Like we've missed what matters. We have the greatest news in the world. Let's raise up kids with their expectation, at least at some point, right? Before they go to college, during college, right after college, someone in this unique time in their life that they will give their life making this good news known somewhere else. We have this news. Let's spread it with urgency because we know everyone will be resurrected, but not to salvation. John 5, straight from the mouth of Jesus. An hour's coming is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Those who hear will live as the Father has life in himself. So he's granted the Son also to have life in himself. He's given authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Like that judgment is coming for all people. Like for every one of us tonight and for every person in the world, including 16 million Mormons. And contrary to what Mormonism teaches, there are no second chances after death. It's appointed for one man to die, for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. The Bible nowhere speaks of second chances after death. You breathe your last breath, your eternity is sealed. Which is why we explain the gospel urgently, and as we do, we believe in the power of Christ to draw people to salvation. You think, how am I going to persuade a Mormon friend or family member to believe the gospel? The answer to that question is you don't ultimately have the power to do that. You have the God-given ability to demonstrate God's love, imitate God's life, explain the gospel in all the ways we just mentioned. And as you do, you must trust his word completely. Trust the power of God's word, knowing that it is indeed inspired and inerrant. God's word is indeed supreme and sufficient. We don't need any other word to save us. The word is supreme revelation. We don't need any private visions. The word is sufficient for our salvation and it's sufficient for other salvation. So we trust his word completely and we pray to him continually, asking God to do what only he can ultimately do. Open eyes, draw people, including, including Mormon friends, neighbors, family members, coworkers, and people you meet on your doorstep to the good news of the gospel. Oh, let's pray continually for Mormons. Yeah, I just, think it would be inappropriate if we didn't stop right now and pray for Mormon friends and neighbors and co-workers, family members. So will you pray with me? God, we praise you for the gospel. And we pray right now for Mormon friends of ours, and neighbors and co-workers and family members. faces, names in our minds, and, uh, and people we don't know. We pray that you would, by your grace, open their eyes to see your supremacy over us. Jesus, your supremacy over us. And the salvation by grace alone through faith alone in you that is available to us. God, we pray that you would give us grace, wisdom, humility, love, clarity in sharing the gospel, boldness in sharing the gospel with Mormons around us. And God, we pray, we pray, we plead that the fruit of our time together tonight would be these, many of these people whom you love, you love them, you love the world so much, you sent your son Jesus to die for them. God, we pray 
that you, fruit of this night, would be many of them coming to know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.